Hello everyone, welcome to Risk Roundup. Science and technology innovations have always been the backbone of economic expansion across nations. From flying shuttles to the spinning jenny, the electric motor to the diesel engine, and in recent times the internet and the internet of things, each innovation has fundamentally transformed nations while ramping up the economic engine. Innovation is undoubtedly an important driver of economic growth. While the world is hoping to trigger large industrial innovations on the back of climate regulations, the reality remains that the nations currently live in the fossil fuel age. The journey of hydrocarbons that started approximately 150 years ago to now has been filled with major controversies and the complex relationship between the regulators and the regulated. The current climate of regulatory carbon capture brings not only the fossil fuels industry, but each nation, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, that is NGIOA, its own sets of opportunities as well as risk. Many oil-producing nations seem to be in visible turmoil. If stability, security, and sustainability are to be achieved, it is important to identify, evaluate, and understand opportunities as well as risk facing the energy industry today and in the coming tomorrow. To discuss the energy security challenges, I'm honored to welcome Honorable Branko Terzik. Branko Terzik is the former utility CEO, commissioner on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and commissioner on the state of Wisconsin Public Service Commission and currently a managing director at Berkeley Research Group. Welcome Branko, we are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Well, thank, so you thank you very much. much. Appreciate. Appreciate. I'm, delighted I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you, Branko. So let's begin by talking about something very fundamental that is going on across nations. Although energy is the most basic resource necessity across any nation, the turbulent global consumer demand, falling oil prices, disruptive innovations, complex regulatory challenges, and rapidly changing energy technologies and processes in cyberspace, geospace, and space brings this industry great challenges and complexities. Where do the energy industry go from here, Branko? Well, clearly there, there is a different position around the world. We have 7 billion people. Only 2 billion have adequate uh, energy, uh, specifically have uh, adequate electric supply, which is uh, affordable, reliable, uh, and adequate. Another two billion or so have electric, some electric service, but it is not reliable, nor is it adequate. And about 1.4 billion people have no electric service whatsoever. And so the global situation is different for the various countries. Uh, some of the countries uh, which are advanced and developed have the full, affordable, reliable system in place. And for them, they can add renewable energy and solar energy and other alternatives because they do not need that energy to keep the lights on. That is, the lights are already on. They have adequate supply. It's reliable. So their only choice decision now is carbon reduction. 
for the uh, other 2 billion people that have inadequate service. They still need uh, conventional electric power in order to provide 24-hour service, reliable service. Uh, they need new facilities to, in, for example, South Africa or India, where there's inadequate capacity or capacity that isn't functioning. So they both they still need to make capital investments in conventional energy to have reliable service. At the same time, they would like to reduce their CO2 emissions, which is another cost factor. And of course, the third group is the 1.4 billion people with no energy electricity service whatsoever. For them, they will need a combination of fundamental uh, reliable energy in the form of fossil energy or maybe nuclear, and they will be adding some uh, renewable, some non-fossil uh, where they can. But keep in mind, in many places, the uh, available renewable energy is not hydroelectric. It is only solar and wind, and generally that will not provide the adequacy, the adequate capacity to run the electric motors that these people would have. So renewable energy in the developing countries may provide you some reading, some lights, some uh, electricity for electronics, but to live the full developed lifestyle with today's technology, we're still going to have to have uh, some of the conventional systems. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it is going to be a requirement because it is not enough. It will not provide uh, what it needs for the developing world. But let me ask you, before we go and discuss uh, the challenges between developing nations and uh, developed nations and what we are trying to do with climate change regulation, uh, it, it brings all kinds of different complex challenges. But before we go further, let me talk about the oil do you think uh, could oil prices stay lower for longer? How would what would it take for this to happen, and what it would mean for energy security and for the energy transition? Because when the oil prices are so low, it brings very complex challenges. Because then the incentive of having alternative energy is not there for many nations. What are your thoughts on that, Branko? Well, keep in mind, uh, Jishri, oil is predominantly used for transportation. Uh, so it is uh, transportation fuel. There is some heating oil, et cetera, in the world. Some parts of the world attempt to make electricity with oil, but that's a very expensive choice if to use oil, particularly when it was $100. Um, so the oil situation is unique. The benefits of oil are that it's very energy dense. Uh, a gallon of oil will carry a large vehicle for many miles. It will produce quite a bit a kilowatt hours, it's very convenient for transportation. The primary fossil fuel in the world is coal. And it is coal which is cheap, available, easy to find, uh, easy to mine, uh, and yet very high in CO2 concentration. So there, uh, we have these different fuels. Each of the fuels has its uh, uh, beneficial characteristics. Uh, each of the fuels has its negative uh, connotations. At this point in time, we have a surplus of oil in the world, predominantly because of a decline in uh, expected demand. Yes. Uh, in the OECD countries, the developed countries, there is an actual small decline in demand. But the biggest uh, decline is the projections that we uh, attributed to predominantly China. We projected that China would grow... At its, uh, at its recent high of 8, 9, 10, 
double-digit growth, and China's uh, growth is declining. Now, all the countries in the world would love to have China's growth of 6.87%. That is fantastic growth, but it was not the growth projected. And so we have a surplus of oil in the market because China only grew at 7%. It didn't grow at 10%. And this has been the, the main factor. That, along with the new oil produced by the United States, which has totally changed the geopolitical dynamic. The top three oil-producing countries are now uh, the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia, and neither the United States nor Russia is a member of OPEC. So uh, the OPEC has changed its dynamic, uh, and we have this new threat of if the uh, OPEC countries curtail supply the American producers will produce more because as the price comes up, more American supply becomes available. So no longer does OPEC have the power and authority which it had in 1970. Yes, yes, you are absolutely right. Now, some say that the biggest change in energy over the last decade was about how and where hydrocarbons were removed from the earth. It seems that a different kind of energy revolution will need to take place for how the energy already removed from the earth is moved across it. There are many who say that the energy transit revolution has already begun. What will be the impact and consequences of this next energy revolution? Well, the main new development in energy transportation, I think, has been the uh, the uh, uh, construction and expansion of liquid natural gas. Uh, uh, prior, the only uh, the global fuel was oil. There were 14,000 oil uh, oil tankers. They could move oil from one place from one place where the price was low to a place where the price was high, and thus we have a global price for oil. Natural gas, uh, only a hundred or so LNG tankers, very small volumes moving in international trade, and so we have three regional natural gas markets based on pipelines. We have the European market the North American market, and the Asian market. And the prices in North America for natural gas have never been tied to the price of oil. The price of natural gas has been in North America determined by natural gas supply and demand fundamentals. The price of natural gas in Europe historically was determined by contract where the price of the natural gas was indexed against a market basket of oil products. And the price in Asia had a combination of some index prices and some spot market prices. And so as we develop uh, more and more LNG facilities, we are we now have six of them under construction in the United States. The first LNG shipments from the United States will leave next month, from the lower 48 of the United States, will leave next month from the Chenier facility. There will be more uh LNG uh, export terminals are under construction, and we will have this new global market of LNG. So that is a significant change from from yesterday or 20 years ago. Yes, 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 absolutely. Now, the global energy companies produce oil, natural gas, coal, nuclear power, renewable energy, and fuels, as well as electricity. Now, amidst the diversity in energy sources, approach as well as supply, how do we achieve stability, safety, security, and sustainability 
in the global energy markets, there are so many complex challenges, so much competition and so many different complex regulatory as well as supply chain challenges. How do we achieve the security amidst that, Branko? Well, if we go back to Winston Churchill, as you know, Winston Churchill, when he was the secretary of the British Navy before World War I, Mm-hmm. Uh, determined that the British Navy should sh- uh, shift from coal to oil. Oil was cleaner. Uh, it required fewer people. It produced uh, more energy per, per, per pound or per cubic foot. Uh, and it was a much superior, f- uh, and the ships could go much further. That is, the same, the same space that used to hold coal could hold oil, and the ships could travel twice as fast. The problem was... Uh, England is a coal producer and does and produced at that time no oil, and this was pointed out to uh, Mr. Uh, Churchill by the admirals of the British Navy. They said, "Well, we we are now not going to have the availability of English coal. We will be dependent on foreign oil, and how will we make that secure?" And Churchill's answer was, "The security would come in diversity of supply." If England developed contracts with multiple nations from multiple locations, then if one country had a problem or if there was a, uh, an issue with supply from another location, the others would cover. And so I think that principle is still valid today, that uh, your, your security comes from both a combination of domestic resources, if you have them, but also having a diverse supply, not being dependent on one supplier. And also, I think, from a national policy, not being overly dependent on one fuel. Yes, that is a smart For example, for electricity production. Yes, that would be a smart strategy. I agree, Branko. Now, the advances in the extracting techniques, you just mentioned a little bit and we talked about it. The advances in the extracting techniques of hydrocarbons from shale is not only altering the oil and gas sector, but the global energy landscape. What steps should oil and gas industry take to create not only the right kind of sustainable energy environment, uh, regulation and ecosystem, but trust in the industry's safe contribution to the energy as it faces serious perception risk of source, safety, security and sustainability? There are very significant, you know, uh, trust issues going on with this industry. How should we go forward on that? Yeah, the industry, I think, made a trim. The uh, we're talking now about the extractive industry, the extractive oil and gas industry, developing uh, oil from shale using hydraulic fracturing. The industry, I think, early on underestimated the um, public's. Uh, uh, knowledge of drilling and the public's knowledge because the industry uh, felt that they had been doing hydraulic fracturing for 50 years. Uh, this was a known technique. Uh, it was certainly improved more recently with horizontal drilling uh, and uh, with others, but this was a technique. The putting of chemicals down uh, has been a technique. It's at least 50 years old, and they misunderestimated the um, the knowledge of the public, they misunderestimated the uh, quickness and ferocity of the critics, uh, and they misunderestimated the notion that there are a lot of people out there which will, which will, who will either knowingly or unknowingly pass along untrue statements. They will hear something which is not true, 
they will not verify it, they'll just accept it, and they'll pass it along. And so uh, uh, there was so much, I think, anti-propaganda uh, that the industry was, was taken by surprise. And the antidote to propaganda is truth. Uh, the industry had to explain that 90% of the liquid going down was pure water that there was very little chemicals. The industry had to explain that they could use chemicals which were not toxic. The industry had to explain that they could use chemicals which were food products, for example, which were edible. Uh, the industry had to explain uh, exactly what they were doing, and this required some time. Also, uh, here in the United States, uh, the uh, new deposits of oil and gas, to be fracked, were located in states that didn't have a long history or didn't have really well-developed knowledge of the oil and gas industry. So these new states had to develop new laws. They had to train bureaucrats, train their own experts. And this took a little bit of time. So that now you can buy a book which has factual material in it. You can interview a, a oil and gas executive who can explain what's going on, who's willing to explain what's going on. Uh, you can find scientists who have studied uh, microquakes, who have studied water pa uh, patterns. Uh, you can find uh, university professors and scientists who will explain that the water table is at 400 feet below ground, but that the, but that the frac zone is 4,000 feet below ground, and that water doesn't flow against gravity. So all of these things, once the public is explained generally is uh, if they're not receptive they're they're at least uh, accepting of the uh, of the facts well glad to know that and I, i'm sure it, it will require much more effort than what they have you know put in so far because uh, there is still a lot of mistrust out there and uh, like you said you know when the facts are known when the data is available then it's easy to convince uh, uh, common citizens and everyone across nations. But uh, I think there needs to be a more effort uh, to convince and to put out the truth that is uh, based on the, you know, the knowledge and information they have. Uh, now, does growth in North American oil supply herald a new era of abundance or does turmoil in parts of Middle East and climate change uh, cloud the horizon? Do you think we are going to uh, benefit from the abundance of oil that we have, or is it going to be uh, lost in uh, translation? Oh, I think already global citizens are benefiting from North American oil because at one time we imported 60% of our oil. We now import less than 40%. And so as we buy less oil on the global market, that makes more oil available on the market to other countries. And so uh, many countries have benefited from the lower oil price as we have uh, in the United States. I think that's uh, the same thing has happened in natural gas. At one time, uh, Jayshree, there were applications to build 26 natural gas import terminals to import natural gas to the United States. We really believed that we were running out of natural gas. Uh, and now we have 26 applications to build export terminals. And, and so what has changed? What has changed is we have discovered that we could extract natural gas from places where we knew it existed, but we never thought we could take it from rock, from the shale rock. 
There is other natural gas out there. As you know, the off the North American coast, off the coast of Japan, there is uh, what's called methane hydrate. Uh, this is the gas that seeps out of the earth uh, in the deep water at very low temperatures. And because it's tremendous pressure and low temperature, the gas doesn't bubble through the water. It binds with the water and forms a natural gas ice. And uh, the deposits of, uh, of this uh, methane hydrate off the coasts of America are estimated to be larger than the deposits of natural gas in North America. Oh, and, and also countries like Japan are, uh, also have huge methane hydrate deposits. And the Japanese government has been funding studies on how, now we don't know how to mine it. We don't know how to develop it. We don't know how to bring it to the surface. And we don't know what ecological damage it could or could not do. But we do know that there is a huge supply of uh, methane, of natural gas, available in the oceans. We know where it is. We just don't know how to develop it. And keep in mind this, Jay Shri, as well. Since the discovery of oil, there have been about 2 million wells drilled. All but 200,000 of these wells have been drilled in North America. The rest of the world really doesn't know what resources it has. Yes, 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 you're right. Uh, and uh, your point about methane hydrate is very significant. There is a source available, which is uh, uh, very good to know because there is an energy source. Now, again, like you said, we still have to figure out how to extract it and how to, you know, what uh, other complex challenges we have to overcome to be able to make a viable energy source. But it is there, and that's uh, good to know because a lot of people have that anxiety and fear that oil is going to run out sooner or later. So for those people, it's good to know and to tell them that there is another source available, so we are never going to run out of energy, so it is good to know. Now, yeah, I, th I think your audience, of course, would also point out that what we're talking about is additional natural gas, which is a fossil fuel which produces CO2. Yes. And so our dilemma is we need to expand our energy infrastructure. More of our global citizens can only lift themselves up economically if they have access to more energy. But at the same time, we have to reduce uh, global CO2 emissions. And that's our dilemma. That's the subjects of the meetings in uh, Paris this week. Yes, and affordable energy. I mean, energy source would be there, but if it's not affordable for you know a lot of developing nations, then the economic expansion that they are hoping for is difficult to achieve. Like you say, and again, yeah, the carbon dioxide, you know, CO two emissions. There is a need for innovation in that. There is a need for investment so that we can figure out how to innovate and how to capture that you know carbon dioxide and uh, you know go from there but again we will talk about the innovations that are uh, the basic fundamental science and technology research that is going on and uh, how it could help we will talk about that uh, in the coming segment but there are a lot of changes happening uh, in the science and technology which are very positive and very uh, uplifting and uh, it would be helping us uh, in the coming years but before we go there let's talk about nuclear energy Nuclear energy is a very sensitive issue in some nations. What considerations should shape decision-making in such nations using, pursuing, or phasing out nuclear power? There's a lot of fear 
about nuclear energy and a lot of nations are in a dilemma whether they should pursue that or whether they should phase out what are your thoughts on that well first we do have nations that have made the decision to continue with nuclear power uh and these would be uh the united states uh england the united kingdom uh china uh india uh, some of the middle eastern countries have ordered new nuclear power plants so there are about 87 uh, 400 and some nuclear power plants in the world there are about 87 under construction most of them are under construction in china uh china india korea uh some of these countries there are also uh, and and of course uh uh france has a large nuclear fleet it, it's predominantly its energy supply electricity supply is nuclear but its next door neighbor germany has decided to close its 18 nuclear plants and as a matter of national policy they will not rely on nuclear uh the other neighbor to france italy had five nuclear plants it has none now it is decided as national policy it does not want to do nuclear next to germany is the czech republic which has nuclear power plants and they want to build new ones and so it's a very specific national decision based on your national history uh in some of the european countries uh, their concern came out of the chernobyl in- incident uh, germany germany austria had one brand new nuclear power plant completed at the time of chernobyl and they decided they were not going to turn it on they just closed it there was many billions of dollars so because of the chernobyl incident so we had that the big other unknown country now is japan uh, japan had 54 nuclear reactors only 6 of them were damaged by the tsunami but they closed all of their nuclear reactors in the entire uh, in the entire island of japan except one in order to investigate whether these reactors had some geologic or some unusual uh risk that they hadn't considered before mm-hmm. and so japan is uh, has been importing natural gas it's the, it's the being uh, in order because they're not operating their nuclear power plants which used to provide 20 some percent of their electricity so it's a very national question uh having to do with your uh feeling about nuclear energy does your country feel it can control this kind of technology there are also concerns about <laughs> nuclear uh, using a nuclear a civilian reactor and then later converting it to produce uh to produce uh, byproducts uh, for the for the nuclear fuels industry uh, although once you do some study you realize that the fuel used in a nuclear reactor for is only 5% enriched uranium while for a weapon you need 100% enriched yeah. uranium so it's totally different but these are things the public has to understand the political public the decision makers and so it's going to be a very national decision jayshree Yes yes you are right uh, it is going to be a national decision now the plunging oil prices risk undermining efforts to reduce the pollution blame for global warming especially projects designed to bring more from each barrel of oil is there any correlation between any both of that what are your thoughts on that branko well one of the uh, so 
the solution to global warming is uh, number one, a reduction in CO2 emissions existing. And the great, uh, the great uh, for the developed countries, uh, the great uh, uh, factor there is the ability to extract efficiency. In the developed countries, we know that we can be much more efficient than we are today. In the United States, the people in California are 20% more efficient than the people in the rest of the country. They have had more rules, more regulations. So we know that we can, we can be more efficient in the developed world. So uh, number one is efficiency. That includes efficiency in uh, producing oil, in transporting oil, and in burning oil in your vehicle uh, as a fuel. For example, I just switched from a, uh, a gasoline-powered six-cylinder automobile to a diesel-powered four-cylinder automobile with much higher mileage. So my CO2 emissions, if I drive the same miles, ought to reduce substantially. And so it will be this combination. So it'll be a combination of efficiency just in operation, efficiency because the new technologies uh, are more efficient, and maybe efficiency stimulated by better pricing, uh, where people would be uh, encouraged to conserve because they weren't getting a subsidy uh, in, in their oil. They weren't being subsidized to use fossil fuels and they were paying the true cost. So efficiency will be, I think, the number one, the easiest and the first thing we should go for. And then after that, we'll have fuel substitution where we will substitute uh, coal and uh, natural gas and fossil fuel generation. We'll substitute it with solar, wind, uh, hydroelectric, uh, biomass and whatever we have uh, that's economic in our own communities. Yes, yes, you're right. Now, the global energy sector is becoming increasingly vulnerable to cyber attacks and cyber criminal activities, primarily due to the widespread adoption of the internet-based or open industrial control systems that are linked with other information technology networks, giving the cyber criminals the back door to exploit system and process weaknesses, like all industries, energy companies are also likely considering the risk of cyber attack as an inevitable one and focus on preparing scenarios to identify, respond, and contain any attacks accordingly. Where do you see the cybersecurity threat and what can be done to prepare? Does the industry have what it needs in terms of the knowledge, resources, and skills to manage its security risk? Um. I, I, about a month ago, I moderated a, a program for the Edison Electric Institute on cyber uh, cybersecurity for the electric power industry. So this is a fresh subject for me, which I researched uh, in order to do. I'm not an expert in it. We have experts within Berkeley, but I did research what was going on in the industry uh, and quickly reached the solution that uh, the number one uh, development has to be uh, knowledge and training. That is, uh, all of our uh, people in the industry have to have to have a heightened awareness of uh, the most simple things: a password protection, uh, not leaving your computer unattended, uh, not plugging in uh, devices that that haven't been researched and haven't been security checked, uh, not bringing in foreign media of not opening up new portals that haven't been uh, 
uh, approved by the IT department. They're just so much of the cybersecurity is common sense uh, and has to do with uh, uh, advanced training that I think that's the number one. And then secondly, the uh, industries have uh, and the governments have all embarked on a very, uh, I think, uh, effective uh, communications campaigns, training campaigns, coordination campaigns where uh, the latest information is available. It is widely shared. Uh, incidents are quickly reported. Uh, the uh, uh, mitigation factors are, uh, are shared, understood, and known. We now have a developing cadre of cybersecurity experts. Uh, firms have increased the, uh, have increased the visibility, the, the, uh, the uh, positioning, and the pay of people doing cybersecurity within the firms. It's become more important, but not not every company is at the same level of development. Uh, and of course, uh, not every executive has the same level of sensitivity or knowledge. So uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, the irony, of course, is we are adding more and more uh, uh, web-based technology to the electric grid, the gas grid, the gas pipeline grid. We need this new technology to increase efficiency, uh, to increase safety, to increase reliability. And in order to do that, all of this technology must be connected uh, through the internet. And so as we're making uh, billing more convenient, as we've put automatic meters on more homes and more industries, uh, we've increased the uh, reliability of the system. We can report outages, we can track problems, but also since all of this is internet connected, we have opened up entirely new areas to uh, internet attack. Yes, yes, uh, that is correct. Now, industrial control systems were not designed with cybersecurity in mind, which is probably an issue that is not just confined to the energy sector. Now, when these systems were designed, security was of little concern, but increasingly, they have been getting interconnected due to reasons such as securing supplies, market integration, and technology adaptation that further complicates the matter. Now, while there is growing awareness of the risk associated with integration and transitioning to digital control systems, there is still relatively little investment in resources or budgets being allocated as needed to manage the fundamental security risk. Where is the cybersecurity investment going for the energy sector? Can you share some insight on that? Well, we have uh, both the uh, in, in, in the United States and uh, Canada, we have the uh, North American Electric Reliability Council, which uh, is charged with uh, reviewing the reliability of the electric grid. Now, historically, that was mostly, do we have adequate transmission capacity? Is there adequate balancing? Uh, are there adequate tie lines to bring regions together? But they have now also uh, realized that uh, cybersecurity is part of their reliability portfolio. Uh, the uh, the national the uh, uh, NERC, the Reliability Council, is under the jurisdiction of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and the commission itself is issuing new rules and new requirements on all of its uh, reporting utilities to enhance their cybersecurity uh, uh, awareness and to enhance their cybersecurity uh, uh, systems 
in order to meet uh, national and international standards. And we also have the National Institute of Standards here in the United States developing guidelines and helping. So there's quite a bit of work going on on parallel tracks, but of course each individual company has to assess itself against some of these standards and then spend the money and take the actions which are necessary. The The cost of not having security will far exceed the cost of any of these security programs. Very true, very true, Branko. Now, another important uh, point is that across nations, critical energy infrastructure is either privately owned or government owned. So ensuring the effective protection of such infrastructure requires collaborative and coordinated actions related to the prevention, preparation, response, and recovery from incidents on the part of everyone across nations, governments, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals. What are your thoughts on the complexity of securing the critical energy infrastructure when the ownership and, you know, there are so many other challenges uh, that comes with it? Well, the ownership uh, we have in, uh, in the United States, and maybe some of your international viewers uh, are not aware of this, uh, we have about uh, 25% of our electric infrastructure, which is owned either by the federal government or by states and municipal government. So uh, we have large federal uh, electric utilities, such as the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Bonneville Power Authority, the Salt River Project, and these are federally government-owned transmission generation operations. We also have many cities which own their own electric distribution, transmission, and generation. The best known is the Los Angeles Water and Power District, uh, the Sacramento California Municipal Utility District, and other cities. Austin, Texas owns its own electric grid. So we do have mixed ownership even here in the United States. Even so, both the, uh, the uh, government employee and the private sector employee uh, will be facing cyber threats. And in both cases, uh, there is government involvement. The, the private owned utilities are 100% regulated by, by a combination of state regulators for retail and the Federal Energy Commission for wholesale. And the municipal systems are regulated by, their, uh, by the law of their state or by their municipal government law. And all are subject to to uh, federal laws dealing with uh, air quality, with environment, etc. So, I don't think uh, it will make a really big difference whether something is privately, whether a utility, monopoly utility is privately owned or government owned. In both cases, uh, there is a role for government to uh, set the standards, to set the rules, and to uh, ensure that the uh, there is adequate tools to protect the systems against cyber attack. So there, there, there is always going to be a government role, no doubt about that, Branko. But the challenge here is that when the nature of the security is that are coming from the cyberspace and the time it takes for the regulations to happen, new regulations that will be effective to manage those security risks, there is a big gap in that. So that is the biggest challenge when it comes to cybersecurity risk, that regulations are not effectively uh, drafted or issued at a rapid pace. And there is probably, I mean, a lot of technology te executives are talking about it, that we should go towards data-centric governance, real-time data, 
because these challenges in the side from the cyberspace are very complex in the, the way regulations are happening in geospace uh, currently you know with the way across nations how governments you know draft and issue regulatory policies it, it's a very long and tedious and complex process and it's just not effective with the cybersecurity challenges so there is a need to you know come with a different strategy and uh, we'll have to wait and see how each nation adapt to that and you know how they come up with a new regulatory environment no i agree with you uh, most uh, regulatory authority uh, most federal laws in the united states governing state or federal regulatory agencies have provisions for emergency rules uh historically and these can also be applied so agencies can move quickly uh when they want to and when they have the pressure and and they need to i i don't worry so much about that with respect to the data centric we have of course the other concern with data in that everybody is concerned about private data and and uh the 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 question is at what point does your collection of data for for security intrude on the private data nature of uh of my concerns that you know too much about me so we do have a state regul I attended the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners conference in Austin Texas uh, last month this is the uh, association of all of the state regulators and one of the topics there was uh, yes we're going to all this data but how do we ensure that uh, private data customer data is only used for public good and is not exploited for example no that that debate is going to happen and that needs to be discussed because i think the pri- definition of privacy and what we were considered that this is a private information i think that is changing rapidly what is private and what is not private that debate will have to happen and we'll have to come up with a new definition because when it comes to government there is a lot of you know mistrust from common citizens that they fear that their private information is going to be misused but the same common citizens are willing to provide their private information to private industries for in terms of you know all the applications that they are using and the kind the, the kind of services they are expecting without any hesitance they are you know willing to share the data so there is going there is a need for a debate where we talk about that okay what is a pri- you know privacy and what is you know not private right now because that is what it was considered private information few years ago that is not going to be valid probably in the coming years because of the willingness on the part of you know everyone to share information without thinking of their security risk so but that will take its time and we'll have to wait and see how that debate shapes up but that there is a need for that debate now let me let me just point out you and i both live in the united states yes. and there's a when it comes to private information there is a very humorous example in that uh if if you were to walk up on a to a stranger on the street and say what religion are you or say where does your son go to school or is your child a good student or what teams do you support the people would say that's none of your business but then when you go to the parking lot and you go to the any big parking lot you will see on the back of automobiles all of the the bumper stickers and the information and on those bumper stickers will be what college i went to what professional sports teams do i support 
where my child goes to school, whether my child was a good student or not, whether I think I ought to have a right to have a gun or not, uh, whether I'm a member of the Masonic Lodge, and all kinds of private information. There you go. There you go, Branko. That is the thing. I mean, you know, people are, it's just how they want to share that information. If someone asks them, they're not willing to give, but they're, like you say, you know, they're willing to give that information voluntarily without anyone asking that. So there, there, definitely there is a need for that debate on privacy. And I look forward to, you know, that debate that how, you know, we come up with the new definition of privacy. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. So now let's there, there, There's one other example. When I chaired a United Nations uh, Economic Commission for Europe Committee on Clean Electricity, I received a call from a medical doctor who asked, we had 56 countries who were members, and the medical doctor asked, could he address my group because he was asking that that uh, inf electricity information uh, be made available, electric consumption information for residential consumers be available for real-time medical research. And I said, doctor, I said, what are you talking about? Well, he said, I would like to see, he said, if you can give me the real-time electric use for everybody in a city, from that real-time electric use, I can tell you whether you have an influenza epidemic or not. Yes, it is possible. Because people will stay home when they have the flu. They won't go to work, and their electric consumption patterns will be different the day they stay home versus the day they went to work. And he said, we can try. I said, I have computer models. I can track this. And we can give this information to the public health authorities and we can maybe we can contain the flu epidemic to a certain neighborhood or a certain city region and not let it grow if we catch it early enough. So there you have, I think, the kind of uh, if you told the public that their hourly electric load information would be available only to medical researchers for that purpose, I think you might gain acceptance. <laughs> yes, but it would not be but it would not be available to a pharmaceutical company to come to your door and sell you pills yes because they know you're sick yes yes that i mean technology and different processes are going to change the whole global dynamics of how we access information and how we share the information and how we use the information so it's it's a very interesting time right now branco so let's talk about the fossil fuel age we still live nations still live in the fossil fuel age. And 150 years ago, fossil fuels provided only about 5% of the world's energy. I think in the 1950s, it provided about 93% of the world energy. In 2013, it provided about 87%, a little bit, you know, less than uh, in 1950s. I don't have the data for 2015, but I'm sure it's not changed that uh, significantly. So, from 5% to 93% to 87% of the energy that the world consumed came from fossil fuels, a figure that remarkably is, you know, fascinating. This roughly divides into three categories of fuel and three categories of use, oil used mainly for transport, gas used mainly for heating, and coal used mainly for electricity. What complex challenges do nations face as they strive for sources that supply the energy in a safe, secure, and sustainable way? Well, I think two things. Number one, uh, it is uh, 
uh, we need to both reduce and replace. So we need to, uh, in the short run, we need to reduce our use of fossil fuels in order to lower CO2 emissions. Uh, and in the long run, we need to replace them with either uh, technologies which use the fossil fuel but do not produce, uh, but capture the CO2, or technologies which have no CO2 in the process, uh, nuclear, solar, uh, geothermal, and other technologies. And uh, all of that has some uh, expense associated with it. Uh, as I wrote in a blog uh, a few days ago, the wealthy, the developed world has, I think, the money to uh, to uh, pay for this. Um, whether it has the money to pay for it uh, for the developing world as well as the developing world, and whether there is the the uh, political will, and I think the popular will for the developed countries to pay for the mitigation and the costs that the uh, developing world will have to undertake, that is the key question. There's going to be no, no reduction of CO2 emissions without the developed world financing the underdeveloped worlds or the developing world's uh, energy transition. Yes, but the, it comes with a lot of complex challenges. I mean, if we talk about the climate change discussions that are happening in Paris currently, the implications of it, the technology implications, the economic implications, progress and development to limit climate warming to whatever they come up uh, as an agreement, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees Celsius, will come up with very complex challenges. Even if we have money to make that transition, to make those changes, it still will bring very turbulent time because of the large you know, energy industry that we have if we talk about United States. Because you are trying to fundamentally change the course of the industry and the course of the economy. And it's always very turbulent. It's going to impact the progress and development. It's going to, it will take at least a few decades before we see any stabilization. So are we prepared as a nation to go through that kind of turbulence? And what will be its impact? Well, I think our political leaders are trying to prepare us. Uh, uh, I was a Republican uh, commissioner. I was appointed as a Republican. But President Obama has been speaking very strongly, very firmly on the need for uh, uh, CO2 emissions control. He very much is an ardent uh, supporter of the uh, need to mitigate CO2 for climate change. And uh, uh, so I, I don't think it's there's a lack of leadership. We have a Congress which does not believe that there is such a problem. Uh, on the other hand, uh, just the simple switch from... Uh, burning coal to burning uh, natural gas in the United States has far exceeded the decline in CO2 emissions that we would have promised at Kyoto. And so the U.S. did not make a promise. And yet with the tremendous shift from uh, uh, coal generation over to natural gas generation, where now more electricity last month was produced from natural gas than from coal, uh, we have tremendously dropped our CO2 way below any government program that was conceived of five, ten years ago. That is, the dynamics of the market have more quickly reduced CO2 than the political programs we thought we could implement ten years ago. 
And so I'm a great I'm a great believer in the fact that the markets the market signals will work, uh, and that uh, I'm a bit of an optimist. I think that we'll be able to handle the problem because uh, no one government will have to handle the globe's problems. Each government will have to handle its own problems, and within each country, there are numerous uh, techniques, technologies, uh, economic incentives available to do that. Yes, you are right. I mean, every uh, no one nation, even the most powerful nation, they cannot manage the global risk on their own. It's a very complex set of challenges. So we'll have to wait and see how they try to do that. But if you have to take a decision. Uh, if you are the decision maker, how would you achieve the complex goal of limiting the climatic warming to 1.5 degree or 2 degrees Celsius? How, how would you go for, forward? I would go through it through through a combination of three uh, three steps. Uh, and I've written about this in, in a book published some years ago. Number one, uh, we need to do all the energy efficiency that we can because it is uh, immediately economic. Uh, number two, we need to go ahead with uh, subsidies to certain uh, 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 non-CO2 emitting technologies. I'm talking about solar subsidies, wind subsidies, renew these kinds of subsidies at certain levels are justified for certain periods. And number three, I would continue going ahead with uh, with research and development and pilot projects in carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, because I think that uh, including including carbon caption from the atmosphere, which I think may be what we might have to do in order to reach our goals. And then fourthly, I would I would continue research development and promotion of non-carbon uh, producing nuclear technologies, small modular nuclear power plants, et cetera. I think we need to move ahead on all of those fronts. And we can move ahead on all of those fronts in order to bring the CO2 concentrations to uh, to where they need to be. No single tool, uh, not, in, not efficiency by itself, not solar by itself, not wind, no single tool I think will get us where we need to go. And the tools will be used differently by different countries. Uh, yeah. con countries with huge coal deposits uh, may find it attractive to fund and develop carbon capture sequestration while other countries may, uh, who are better positioned vis-a-vis uh, -vis the sun might find it uh, much more beneficial to just uh, to, uh, to uh, increase their solar units and to fund uh, battery uh, storage technologies, which is, which is the missing component for much of the renewable, intermittent renewable, is the unavailability of large-scale economic uh, energy storage. Yes, yes. No, I agree. The broad integrated approach will have to be taken by each nation and uh, that will depend on, you know, the conditions within their nation and uh, how they can move forward on that. Now, there are many who say that the world's fossil fuel companies risk wasting billions of dollars of investment by not taking global action to fight climate change seriously. What would you say to them? They feel that, you know, they are not on board about these uh, climate change uh, that needs to happen, uh, the uh, initiative, and uh, that they are not investing what they should be investing. Yeah, so we, we have in the literature of management and in strategic management literature, uh, uh, people who believe that companies are, do, uh, companies are most successful 
when they uh, stick to their core competency. If your core competency is producing uh, uh, first-rate beef or first-rate dairy cattle, maybe you shouldn't get into the movie-making business. Or if your first rate, if your competency is make is Walt Disney and making entertainment, uh, maybe you shouldn't get into the automobile manufacturing business. So I'm not sure if I wanted people to invest in uh, non-fossil fuel technologies, that a fossil fuel technology company would be the one best to do that. Yes. And so I, I'm not really convinced that the. Uh, that the major oil companies who are very good at finding and developing oil would be the best companies to find and develop electric storage batteries or would be the best companies to find and develop hydrogen technologies or would be the best companies uh, to find and develop new nuclear technologies. And so I'm not an ardent supporter of the notion that the existing uh, oil and gas companies ought to be out there spending money on 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 things that they're not expert on, on things that didn't make them as successful as they are today. Let them do what they're doing. Uh, if you want to tax them, that's fine. But, uh, you know, they, they're good at what they do. And as long as we need oil, we need it cheaply, we need it available, we need it done efficiently, let them do that. And let other entrepreneurs or companies which specialize in these other areas, let them do their job. Yes, it makes sense. Now, discussions on the energy transition usually focus on the economics of renewables and cost comparison with fossil fuels and other energy sources. What is usually ignored are innovations in materials and chemical processes, which are nonetheless increasingly important as agents of change in the energy sector. What are your thoughts on that? Because there are some amazing uh, scientific breakthroughs happening in materials research, material science research that could shake up the energy sector in the coming years uh, from artificial leaves to new types of superconductors to genetic control of materials and graphene. It is said that these scientific breakthroughs may well lead to applications with a large and disruptive impact on today's energy world. Europe has, is investing heavily into the research on graphene and billions of dollars are invested in that. So if fossil fuel in the, is fossil fuel industry prepared for such disruptive innovations, we are not talking about climate change. This is fundamental science and technology research. What are your thoughts, uh, Branko, on that? Well, uh, number one, I support uh, governments uh, funding basic research. Uh, number two, uh, I support having uh, patent laws and uh, patent protection laws which truly work well to incent and to uh, and to provide uh, the developers of new technologies with the incentive to do that technology and to reap the benefits of it i, I think we have in the world we need there are probably uh, some patent reforms that need to be done uh, i think we have too many lawsuits of people who come up with a new technology and somebody else, uh, we have these patent trolls, as they're called, that, that look around and try and buy up technologies to, to sort of blackmail you into paying them. I think there's reforms in this country's patent system that need to be done. So we need investment. We need invention. Uh, we need to have security markets 
and funding mechanisms that will fund entrepreneurs and small developers. Uh, some of the crowdfunding on the internet, I think, can do that. And we might need to clear some of the securities rules to make it easier for uh, uh, new developers and inventors to raise capital. So we need to remove any barriers that are barriers to new technology getting there. Some of those barriers may be existing uh, building codes and existing rules. For example, uh, many people have said, let's have natural gas fueled vehicles. Well, that's fine, except in some communities, there are building codes which don't allow you to put a natural gas compressor in your garage so that you can fill your automobile at your house rather than having to go to a central station since you already have natural gas at your house for your heating. So you find that uh, sometimes uh, just clearing out the barriers uh, that didn't exist for bad reasons, they were there for good reasons, but with the new technology, the home compressor, for example, nobody saw that in the future somebody would want to have a, a, a natural gas compressor in a home because they didn't realize that maybe in the future somebody would want to have compressed natural gas in their vehicle. So I think we have a variety of things to move. There's plenty of work to be done by economists, by lawyers, by bureaucrats, by social workers and by others. And of course, information is, I think, the, the most important thing. People need the information about these new technologies, uh, uh, open information, full information, so they can make attestments. You know, one of the things people are talking about is the wireless transmission of electricity, which would eliminate the need for long distance transmission lines. Now, if we had effective wireless transmission of electricity, remote villages in India, Africa, and other places wouldn't need to wait for multi-million dollar transmission lines. They could just put up a receiver, an antenna, and receive the electric power. But think of, on the other side, all of the people that would be very worried if the, now a tremendous amount of energy was coming through the air. What if you walked in front of it? What if your child was in front of it? What if you were in it for a long time? So, you know, people are concerned about the electromagnetic uh, 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 emissions from a cell phone. You know, people are talking about, well, maybe you shouldn't keep the cell phone too close to your ear because there's EMF. What are you going to do if you're standing and there's a big electromagnetic wave transferring energy from one part of the community to the other? And so we have a, a scientific uh, facts have to be known, research, and the public has to be aware of what's going on. Yes, yes, you are right. Now, irrespective of industries, the regulatory path across nations is filled with major controversies. Each nation has its own tensions between regulators and the regulated. As the current climate of regulatory carbon capture brings each nation its own set of opportunities as well as risk, the clash between free and unrestricted competition and restricted cooperation continues. There is no global, national or local consensus on most of the critical risk facing nations and its industries. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I'll stick to the area that I know better. I'll leave the, the uh, risks more to you. But uh, in the area of uh, regulation of monopoly, regulation of electric and natural gas systems, um, you're right. There are no global standards. But we have over 100 years of experience here in the United States and a little bit in, in Europe as well 
on the regulation of private monopoly. We have tried multiple systems. Uh, we have made we have made mistakes, but we have developed over a hundred years a series of regulatory principles, which are solid, which work, and which are exportable to other countries. and uh, And one of the principles, for example, is the independence of the regulator, because the regulator is asked to make a scientific and factual finding. Not, not a legal finding. So you want the regulator to factually determine that building this transmission line is safe. You want the regulator to factually determine that alternative A is less expensive to consumers than alternative B. This is an investigation of facts. This is not an investigation of law. And so one of the difficulties I've seen in many countries, which are only which in the last 10 years have introduced regulation, India, Europe, and other places, is that the political organiz uh, the political entities, the governments, uh, don't understand that they can have an independent regulatory agency under its law, but they have to leave the independent agency to make the the scientific factual decisions. That, uh, that if, if the cost of electricity is five rupees as found by an independent agency who's looked at the facts, the government can't insist that the price be two for political reasons. It's either factually five or it's not. And so, and so we're, we have, I think, in many countries this tension between ministries which historically had the authority to set prices and the new independent regulatory agency required when you have private capital in order for the private capital to feel that it is fairly treated. Yes. Uh, we know, for example, that private capital will come anywhere in the world where it's fairly treated and that uh, the notion that uh, only 27% of people in sub-Saharan Africa have is electricity while, while, while 72% have cell phones is not because they cannot afford electricity, but they can afford cell phones. It's because cell phones are offered by entrepreneurs under a set of rules where they are, where they are welcome to make investments in the cell phone industry. On the other, on the electric side, there are rules and procedures, or there's a government monopoly which doesn't allow private capital to come in and offer electric service. So, in my opinion. Any places in the world that don't have electricity is not the result of low income. It's yes. the result of government policy. Yes, yes. No, very good analysis, Branko. I, I, I am taking in a lot of your time. So the, this is probably the last point of discussion, Branko, that based you have extensive experience with infrastructure industries from electric, coal, oil, and natural gas and water sectors. You have been a commissioner, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, you have been a commissioner with Public Service Commission of Wisconsin. You have been a CEO, a chairman of a utility company. What is the one, based on your experience over the years, what is that one thing you would like to change with reference to infrastructure industries? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm not sure one thing needs to be changed. I think what I would like to see is this... Uh, is the continuing adoption of uh, regulatory policies which uh, encourage investment 
while at the same time ensuring uh, safety and security. And uh, we know what the principal rules are of these policies. Uh, we know that it requires regulators to make very difficult decisions. The most difficult decision I had to make in my 12 years as a regulator uh, was to raise prices. But you raise, you look at the public and you raise prices today because you know benefits tomorrow. Uh, the right price today will ensure the investment for tomorrow's service, will ensure that the best available technology is there, uh, will provide continuity and adequacy of service. Uh, it's a difficult decision to make. It's hard to find regulators who are willing to make those difficult decisions. Uh, the public may be upset, but in the long run, if the public understands what the rule, what the goal of regulation is, the goal of regulation uh, in, in this context is to make sure that the uh, utilities have made adequate investment and are providing adequate levels of service. Uh, this is a noble goal, and I think we have the tools, the rules, the principles to do this. What we require is well-trained professionals uh, insulated from daily public pressure to do their jobs. And mm -hmm. uh, I salute my colleagues in regulation. They have a very difficult job to do. Uh, mostly they're doing it very well, uh, but it's sometimes under very difficult conditions. Yes, you're right. It's a very complex challenges and very difficult time and very difficult to come up with solutions and to actually implement those solutions. These are very complex and difficult tasks. And I uh, salute you for all the work uh, that you have done for all the service that you have provided for United States. And uh, I am honored that you agreed to come on Risk Roundup and uh, had a dialogue, you know, about all different uh, aspects of the energy industry. And uh, I'm sure that the global community will benefit tremendously from what you had to say. Um, that this is the reason why we established the Cybersecurity Risk Research Center as well as the Strategic Risk Research Center so that we can identify, evaluate and manage the risk facing nation, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. And we can have a dialogue with uh, uh, very important executives like you who have done so much uh, during their time of service and who have had such tremendous experience and have so much expertise in all different aspects of uh, industries as well as governance and regulations that, you know, uh, the young generation, the global community can benefit from that experience. So thank Branko, uh, thank you so much. I'm honored that you talked, uh, had discussed this uh, important uh, industry, uh, energy industry risk with me. And I uh, hope that in future, uh, as we progress and as we come up, as we identify more risk for facing the energy industry, that you would come again on Risk Roundup and uh, uh, discuss these uh, important uh, initiatives and issues and uh, uh, share some wisdom and uh, share some of the knowledge that you have. Jay Shri, it's always a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Branko. Thank you so much. Uh, so that's it for today, friends. Uh, I'm going to end the session here. Uh, we will be publishing this in the form of a podcast, which will be available on iTunes as well as the Android platform. And we will be publishing this as a video dialogue uh, on all of our social networks, on all the risk group networks and YouTube and ev uh, every other uh, source that we have. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, that's it for today. Uh, I'm Jayshree Pandya. See you next time.